so how long have you been in, in the business? What's your what's your so, origin story? So I uh, I got into the brokerage side of the business probably about 14 years ago now. now I'm dating myself. And then we uh, we launched William Wright Commercial uh, just over uh, just over ten years ago now, eleventh year now, and uh, I came from the hospitality industry, and through the hospitality industry, we kind of made a business, whether it be good or bad, of buying and selling like restaurants and pubs, and we probably lost a lot more money than we ever made. But through that process, we bought businesses, sold businesses, negotiated with landlords. On, on the tenant side of things, became commercial landlords and um, dealt with a lot of commercial brokers. And I always felt, and maybe it was a very young, arrogant, 25-year-old kid at the time, but I always felt I knew more than the people I was hiring to deal with this stuff. And I couldn't get anyone to answer the phone. So after uh, exiting that industry, the, the, the ultimate goal was to always go into the brokerage business, the commercial side of it at some point. And, uh, you know, I mean, like there's got to be a better way, like a mousetrap idea yeah. and, uh, left that industry and went and worked at a company called Prompton, which is the little boutique residential brokerage. And I went there on purpose because I wanted to go there versus a commercial brokerage to kind of test my theory on, you know, answering the phones and returning phone calls and all the, the stuff that I felt like was not getting done. And I wanted people to call me because of that and not call me because it had a big commercial brokerage business card attached to it. And after about 18 months at, uh, at Prompton, we were so busy, I, I could barely keep up. And uh, their system didn't really allow me to hire a whole team under it, kind of how their system works. So I, there was one landlord we did work for in Yaletown, and I knew he wouldn't check my credit. And I took probably an advance off like prepaid credit card. I gave him a check and we had 200 square feet of, uh, of an office space, which probably felt like a closet with, with no windows. Half of the space was an X server room with the uh, temperature gauge thermostat was on the other wall, other side. So you couldn't turn it down or up. So it was freezing all winter, all summer. And then the other office had no HVAC system, no AC, but we had a skylight for extra heat in the summertime. And off we went with Ikea desks and just kind of just, Gorilla styled the whole thing, pieced it together, hired great people, and then fast forward, now we got seven offices throughout BC. So what year was that, the 200 square footer? Uh, 2013. 2013. So it felt really big at the time. Yeah. I think I think <laughs> I had blisters on my hands for months after screwing IKEA desks together, <laughs> trying to make this whole thing come to get I like it. A humble beginning. But uh, But yeah, it was, you know, I think... I think in business, so many people forget no matter what business you're in, your your number one asset are people. Yeah. And I think so many businesses get to a certain point and they think the brand's bigger than the the team that got them there. And we've always tried to put our people ahead of everything else. Yeah. To try to get there because the end it, it could all change tomorrow, right? You have a whole bunch of great people leave and yeah. you know, you you feel like you're one step forward, three steps back. Totally. Yeah, I can relate. This company key started in the upstairs loft of a prominent interior designer called BYU. Okay. And uh, in their space, they occupy the ground floor and they kind of had this uh, loft area uh, that they weren't using and it was pretty tiny. Yeah. And yeah, we started there, but it was, it was awesome. Well, I, I can, I can, for all the listeners who obviously haven't been to your office, I've seen a lot of offices in my day. And this is spectacular. So you've definitely come a long way with it. it oh, thanks. Out. Yeah. The end result is amazing. Yeah. We're happy here. Uh, two and a half days a week. 
<laughs> because a lot of people, you know, as comfortable as it, as it is, yeah. a lot of people like working from uh, wherever they're most productive, we like yeah. to say, AKA home, the sofa in the jogger suit, whatever. Well, that's kind our of, presentation center sometimes. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the new model. Though. This is what I think to be, you know, yet to be determined is what does that future office model look like? Yeah. With hybrids and yeah, it's changing. All yeah. That stuff. I'm, uh, I'm bearish, you know, yeah. I own the building and, yeah. uh, it's, you know, we have vacancy, the vacancy in the buildings, uh, pretty typical in the industry. I think it's 19.1% was the last number I heard, which is crazy high. I think anything over yeah. 10 is high. Yeah. Um, so 19.1 is a, a big, scary number. Um, and I don't know that, uh, we're past the worst of it. Yeah. You, know, you know, better than I would, but I think that there's a lot of, uh, employers that are just getting less value from their office, you know, yeah. using it half the time instead of all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, clients like honestly, part of the reason this office is so nice is so that we can impress a potential client. Yeah. For sure. Our, their exactly. office is the nicest that they've been in and they're, when they're doing their sort of tour yeah. of our competitors. But, uh, nowadays I don't even think they care. Honestly, they just as, just as soon, you know, meet on the site, walk the dirt, go for yeah. coffee, you know, kind of have a mobile, yeah. Type of meeting like that. And I like that too. Yeah. You know, we love, we love walking the dirt. That's a big part of it. Um, so do we need to sit down on this beautiful soft leather and look at that view? I don't know. It's kind of nice, but not getting as much value from it as we used to. Yeah. That's understandable. Yeah. So why, why did you start your own brokerage and brand instead of going with, uh, one of the big houses like Collier's that sure. has yeah, uh, that's a great question. You know, um, like I said, I thought, from coming from the industry that I did into the brokerage industry. Um, I, I don't try to think how I, how I put this professionally. Um, maybe sometimes you can't teach old dog new tricks. And I just felt that the industry as a whole was probably a little bit older in demographic, just, just with a lot of the companies. And I thought if I can't get the guy that I hired to fill my vacant space to answer the phone, and I'm supposed to be the client. Who 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 else's calls is he not answering? And when we started, it was purely based on, and this sounds kind of cliche, was very customer service, communication, and consistency, which were three things that I thought in our industry were kind of just really like forgotten about. And uh, explaining them to to trainees and new people in the business is kind of like this is the expectation. Like customer service is so important in every industry. And I think a lot of times in the commercial realm, a lot of entitlement almost kind of crept in where we're in a business in real estate as a whole where people give us free inventory. Like it isn't, obviously there's marketing costs and there's time we invest, but we're not taking the sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars risk that a developer takes or a landlord takes to give us that inventory. And I think we really wanted to focus on kind of like fundamentals of what I think business should be. And we're in a business of execution. I think it goes back to your point about the offices is I think a lot of people want execution and you can have this great fake it till you make it type impression in business, whether it's a beautiful office or you, you lease a Ferrari or whatever it is to give that impression. At the end of the day, the client wants execution. And in today's world with today's construction costs and land prices and interest rates, execution is more important than ever. And I think from our standpoint is I didn't feel a lot of the competitors in our commercial real estate realm probably had the same focus on what I did. Um, so in, in early days and probably now, maybe still, we get a lot of new people to the industry. And I've always been someone who's focused a lot on attributes 
versus skills when hiring somebody. Um, you mean seven foot tall person? That's that's an attribute. A skill would be teaching them how to shoot a basketball. We look at that same aspect as if we hire great people, first and foremost, who are passionate about our business, we can make them successful. And I think a lot of people uh, go into commercial real estate on the brokerage side because they feel they, I don't want to say they feel they have to, but they 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 fall into it or their their dad did it or their their friend did it and they they go through the motions and we're very much about quality over quantity on on who we have as part of our team across the province and and we try to reflect that also in clients because we want to work hard we want to execute for those people and i think the core basic things that we've built this company on are just generally forgotten consistency is super important we all go to mcdonald's when we're on vacation in any city we go to because we know what we're getting there's no surprises like you're going to get relatively similar fish fillets everywhere in North America. And you know, the stomach aches coming, but you don't care. Like, <laughs> you, you know, the product communication is the single most powerful skill. I think in business that everybody forgets about. And, um, I mean, people who have husbands or wives or girlfriends and boyfriends, and that individual goes to Vegas for five days, but doesn't f- call back. Like we're all not thinking really good stuff as humans. <laughs> we're all like, Oh no, it's going on versus, they send a photo every couple hours or a call at nighttime. That consistent communication is such an important skill that I think so many people forget about. And when we look at our industry in commercial real estate is people, it, the lack of communication that probably happens between you know brokers and clients, the lack of communication that probably happens between broker and broker, I think is a, is a, is a challenge out there. So when we hired a lot of individuals, they were newer to the industry. They came from, from great backgrounds and were really good, hardworking individuals and um, I wanted to show them how I thought business would be done versus maybe how I thought maybe some of the other competitors or some of the people in the industry had done it before. And I didn't want to for them to sort of fall into that pattern. It's not saying negative about other companies and that, because there's a lot of great companies out there that do just what we do. Um, but I just think we maybe take a different approach to that. And it sort of helped us grow to the level that we are. We're over, I think we're over 50 or 52 licensees now throughout the province. And my big thing early days was thinking that go back five years or seven years ago to make money in commercial real estate in greater Vancouver was tough. Fast forward to today, it's that much tougher. And at that time, I was thinking, okay, where's the next market? Where are, where are things going to potentially change? And we looked at the Fraser Valley, um, Vancouver Island, the BC interior. And I thought, instead of having a hundred brokers sit in Vancouver and parachute throughout the province, let's have smaller offices, but in more markets. So not only do we have you know, the ability to, to market projects inside and outside of greater Vancouver, but we also have boots on the ground mentality. And then that was the philosophy from day one. We always had a vision of having seven BC offices in these major markets. And then you know, early 2020, this thing called COVID came around and just emphasized those markets far greater than we ever thought would happen, at least you know, accelerated our growth, that we had a footprint in some of these markets already. And um, we were going there regardless. Obviously, the, you know, the livability factor and the cost of living came into play, and a lot more people now look at that, the work-from-home model and the hybrid models, where people are now can take a fast ferry from Nanaimo into downtown Vancouver in 70 minutes. It takes me an hour and a half some days to get from Coquitlam. So, you mean, I think all of that stuff there. So that was a, a big game changer for us. We, during COVID, when we, and I mean this with all disrespect, uh, when we realized that not everyone was going to die, we quickly thought, okay, that there's still clients that we still have to do work for. We still have to lease stuff. 
And we opened two offices during COVID, which at the time was crazy. And looking back on it now, it was probably crazier. But then when you fast forward, when the real estate market took off and all of a sudden every, you know, money was free and people were buying everything, Vancouver Island was a highly desirable market. Kelowna was a highly desirable market. And we had footprints in these markets that coming out of COVID on the other side, it just, it really took off. And I think a lot of people in our industry during that time took a break. Um, and then when, you know, everything kind of plateaued and leveled out, then people were starting to get back to work versus we were, we probably worked harder during COVID than we did before COVID. If we're not losing ground to our competitors, and even if we're staying flat, when it takes off, it'll take off. And for us, we we're very fortunate that's, that's what happened. Yeah. Sounds like a wild ride. Yeah, it was. I like how you said with all disrespect. I think you meant to say with all due respect. With all due respect. With all due, with all due, with all due respect. Oh, I like it. It's better. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to use that it's a, good, it's a good sound bite. That'll, that'll get things going. With all disrespect intended by the what I'm about to say. <laughs> uh, that would be a good sound bite to share. That's awesome. Uh, that sounds cool, man. I mean, it's, uh, I, I hear you, um, I mean, back to the, why not Collier's nothing against Collier's, but you, you started out with like, there, there ought to be a better way. Yeah. And if you go into a big existing company like that and I, I did not pick it on them, but they're kind of like, in my mind, at least like the preeminent, the, yeah. the, well, I think a lot of people's mind, my mind yeah. as well. Right. They're, yeah, they're, they're, the, they're the biggest one top of the food chain. Yeah, right? They're the, the, the yeah. big Goliath out there. In our world, it would be Rennie and in yeah. the commercial world, it's Collier's. Yeah. Um, but you know, global. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're not going to change their ways. You no. know, you could even recruit your own people, but they're going to get drawn into the Collier's kind of system and totally. culture and all that kind of thing. Yeah. We've had lots of people, like we have a, a handful of people that have come from that one particular company. And I think they're a much better fit within our system, probably than within their system. And I think when I was at, when I was at Prompton, one thing that, that really surprised me it was an eye opener is just how many great people would come in and out of that office that didn't have a job in the industry a year or two later. And these were people that probably should have been very successful in it, but there wasn't a lot of mentorship. And that wasn't a problem at the company I was at. That was like an industry problem where it's welcome aboard. Here are some business cards. Good luck. Call me if you need anything. Yeah. And, and watching that happen, I was determined to try to change that where I would lose sleep if we had a team of people come in to any office and they came in the morning and had no idea what to do. I think, I think it's, it's a recipe for failure. Could you imagine being a lawyer and I mean, they put you in a corner and say, good luck or work from home and we'll see how it works out. Like, like you need that mentorship. You need that stuff. So when we, when we started this, it was a matter of like, we're going to smother people with leadership. We're going to smother people with mentorship. You can, I tell people they can call me 24 seven and, and a lot of people take me up on it. Um, but nothing more frustrating in our industry when you're trying to learn it, or even if you're well-established, trying to do a deal. No two deals are ever the same in our business. I mean, a lot of them may be very similar, but tenant requirements are always different and things are always changing and moving and no two leases are ever the same. That I'd be frustrated if I'm trying to do a deal as a salesperson and I can't get a senior person on the phone to help me through that transaction. Mm. And that was one thing that I heard consistently that a lot of people struggled with in this industry was to get people on the phone to help them or even to get them to show up to help them. And I was like, we're, we're going to buck that trend. We're going to go the opposite direction. And uh, we are very lucky. I, you know, this number may be, may be wrong. I want to think there's like three or four people in a decade have left on their own accord. And for our industry, which is usually typically very high turnover, uh, I think speaks volumes just for the company's morals, but also all the individuals we have. And I look at it when people are joining us, I mean, they're taking a risk on me. 
and and then the company and we have to deliver every single day. And I think so many people will look at it when someone quits or someone leaves. It's like uh, that that person was an idiot. They're dumb. They 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 were going to fail anyways. And we have to look at it, look in the mirror, and say, how did we let them down? Like, what didn't we do to make them successful? And we try to echo that across the board. And I think in our in in our company, we we we're very family focused. We operate like a big family more so, maybe dysfunctional at times, but a big family. But also it's, I mean, you guys see it. There's a lot of ups and downs in our industry that that the husbands and the wives and the girlfriends and the kids, like they're joining the company too, whether they want to or not. So we have to sort of look at that and take care of everyone in the process just to make sure we all get out on the other side. And obviously right now in a, a market that's probably not as fruitful as it once was maybe 24 months ago. Uh, I mean, this is where I think the true characters come out. And this is where I think the companies that if your opportunities to grow and expand, if you can do it right now and that market tilts in your favor, off you go. Yeah, I I hear about it a lot. I talk about it a lot because my family is one of the owners of Lee and Associates or yeah. smaller brand. They got yeah. three offices yeah, yeah. in BC. Um, but yeah, one of the one of the big frustrations that comes out over family dinners is uh is losing people. Yeah. You know, usually to one of the bigger brands. Totally. Um that tend to uh I remember they offered one of uh um I won't say who it is, but one of the very well-known people in the office, uh, one of the big houses that was setting up operations here, offered them a quarter million dollars many, many years ago, just yeah. as a signing bonus, just yeah. to attract them to the to the new office to, yeah. you know, bring a following, bring some legitimacy, and probably a following of other agents. Um, and but it's and that's a little bit frustrating for sure. But it's more on the other end of the spectrum where they might spend years training somebody, investing yeah. in somebody, only to have them baited away by. The story, um, you know, the bigger houses uh, talk about the traffic on their website, their yeah. global network of offices and buyers potentially and, yeah. and opportunities to maybe double end, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I can I can debunk that for them really quickly because I think in BC, um, I mean, most buyers are have representation in BC or are in BC in some facet. Not too many people out of a New Mexico office are calling up here saying, hey, I'd love to buy that office building. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think, I mean, I think it was, I think it's a great story and probably still is a great story. Um, I think as the business continues to go down that road of, of execution is so important. Yeah. I think a lot of people are are more probably inclined to work with brokers or brokerages that they feel are, are great in that market. Yeah. Maybe don't necessarily need the national presence that they felt there once was. And I know for us having the seven BC offices has resonated a lot with a lot of clients because now you know, they own in Kelowna. And maybe they own a shopping center in Kamloops and they own something in Victoria. And the fact that we can kind of create that one-stop shop for them, I think goes a long way. As long as we can deliver, we're only as good as our last transaction. And you could have a great year, but then we drop the ball really quickly early next year and things go awry really quickly. So I think it's really important that, that I mean, you always got to innovate. You always got to be humble in this industry because it can go the other way faster than it can. Do you only grow organically or have you bought other brokerages? We've only grown organically so far. Um, I think we can continue to do that maybe until Alberta, but I think there, our strategy will have to change if we go kind of out, start heading East with it, different markets, um, you know, in BC, typically you get a listing and there's five buyers vying for your attention and you maybe go to Edmonton and there's one buyer and six sellers vying for your attention. So it's a different model that works there. I think we would be uh, naive and arrogant at the same time to think we could go into Edmonton and know that market better than people locally do. We obviously follow it intensely and we watch the stats like everybody else does, but 
Um, boots on the ground, I think, is the most important thing. So, I mean, we do have ambitions to go into Alberta. That's kind of next on the docket. Um, there's obviously a lot of good traction in Alberta right now from uh, from the brokerage side of things, and you know things are kind of going up. And I and I you know I don't I don't think they could have got a lot of worse to be honest with you. If you look at the oil and gas crash and like the office vacancy and all that stuff, like you really only had one real direction to probably go at that point. And for us, it's just a matter of of timing it properly. So I'd like to think we can probably build great teams in Alberta, but at the same point in time, if we don't feel we can get the talent that we need to do it, and we have to look to acquire that would be on the would be on the table. But as of right now in BC, we haven't had to do that. You could probably acquire Lean Associates. The older generation <laughs> yeah. is uh, getting really long in the tooth. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think one thing too, like you know, so much has changed in the past ten years, like COVID and social media and all of this stuff. And most of our, our team, I would say, and this, this isn't by design, I, I would like to take credit for it, but it's not me, are probably in their like mid to late 20s into early 40s. So a lot of people can resonate within that generation. And a lot of people, you don't hear too many stories of, you know, I used to send my offer by pigeon and I used to get the MLS newspaper would come in once a week and we'd all fight for it. Like you don't get a lot of those stories around the office where now everyone understands what social media is and everyone understands what Instagram is. So um, I think that's key for it. Cause I think if you look at the generational wealth exchange that's happening right now, and it could be the greatest generational wealth exchange we'll ever see property values in the city have just skyrocketed over 10 years where families aren't selling as much as they probably once did. And now it's getting willed down. We deal with more 35 year old, um, daughters making decisions than we do maybe the 65 year old father that we did five or six years ago. So we're finding it's a younger younger demographic that's part of the decision-making process in our business. And you also find too that typically it's, they don't own just one. You, you think they own one and you do a deal with them and then you find out they own the building next door and they own four strata lots down the street. So um, so we deal with a lot. Generational wealth, I think, has changed our industry where the 35-year-old daughter knows what Twitter is. They know what Instagram is versus the father may not be as in tune with that. So it's really important that I think we have a, a good presence on the social media network and we can relate to the people that we're dealing with versus maybe some of the older generation may not have that same experience. Help me understand the industry a little bit better, sure. yeah. you know, starting uh, with the top of the food chain, call it Colliers. Um, yeah. Who owns Colliers? What's the parent company? That's a good question. Uh, well, they're publicly traded. A lot of the big ones are publicly traded. Yeah. I feel wow. like it's real realogy or something like it that. It could be. It could be. I'll be honest with you. I don't spend enough time researching you don't care the competition i'm yeah. more focused on what we, you know what we can control in our industry so you got the industry's kind of got like four tiers for lack of better words you got kind of like your bigger larger scale brokerages which are all a lot of them are international which is in the the a lot of that's our, where colliers is colliers would be and who in else there. is in You'd there probably say like a cbre yeah uh, avis and young JL, uh, jll jll would be one. Um, I mean, some and some a market like JLL, they obviously might be bigger in some countries or other provinces than they maybe they are in BC. But they have a great. I mean, the brokers that we've dealt with over there are always been so great to work with. So you got kind of like your bigger international, and then you've got kind of like your medium sized brokerages, which I would consider that we would fall in to. And then you've got kind of some brokerages that um, uh, that maybe don't aren't as active, let's say, in the commercial real estate realm, where it's kind of you know, the side hustle, like a residential brokerage with a few. Commercial. Uh, yeah, you could look at that. I'd probably say they're probably the fourth tier. So you got oh. your resi-mercial ones, but then you've got kind of like some commercial brokerages that probably don't have the same emphasis on the day-to-day -day that say like like a like we do. And there's nothing wrong with that. You may have an, 
older uh, older broker roster, like Lee and Associates. <laughs> I would I would I wouldn't use that name, but uh, but they may not be so, as active. Yeah, all right. As some as some of the other ones, and then you've got like your residential uh, residential houses that will have both sides of it. Yeah. And so let me just summarize that. So yeah. the, at the top tier, you got your multinationals. Yeah. Uh, then you've got your regional, highly active brands. Yeah. And then tier three is is sort of um, you know the the ones been around a long time. Yeah. Local, regional, just not yeah. really active. And then fourth is that what you called resi commercial. Yeah. Resi, yeah. your typical Remax house might have both. And then you've got, you know, you've got companies like like uh, like Corbell, which you see tons of their signs around here, and they've got an incredible team of guys and they're, they're very small, but they're, they're, they punch much larger than their weight class for what they do. Right. So you got a lot of great local companies like that, that are, are, are more like kind of like team setups for or like a better regional specialist. Like, yeah. Them. Yeah. They, they specialize in a certain area yeah, and stuff them. like that. Yeah. And they do, they do a great job with it. And, and we get the fortunate, we get to work with them all the time. So at the top of the food chain, the, the multinationals, uh, they're publicly traded usually. Yeah. Um, what is it? What what's their position like? What's their offering? Why why do agents choose to go there? Well, I think you know, I think I think every I think it's really important for a broker to find a brokerage that they feel they fit within. And I think different people put onuses on different things. I think some people may like the ability to work in a larger company. Some people might like the ability to work for a national or international company, and that might be something that they put a lot of onus on. Um, I know for us, we you know, I'm a big believer. Like you can you can read about brain surgery and you can then perform brain surgery. And for us, it's a lot of training, but it's getting people hands-on right away, getting them in the mix so they can work with senior brokers so they can learn the transactions. Um, so I think we appeal to like those type of people, to people that want to get in. I, I would argue to say that I think in a medium-sized brokerage, you might get uh, you might get the opportunity to work on more faster and get in there a little bit more than maybe with some of the larger ones where maybe you've got to work your way up uh, through certain things. So I think it's just a matter of, of individuals finding what's important to them. So when a newly licensed person joins yeah. a large multinational, uh, what would their role be on a, on a team? Branding. Not, not going through it myself. Um, you mean stories that you hear is they might work in, in they might do some, uh, some analyst work for them, uh, make some brochures, do a lot of the running around. Cold calls? To, cold calls. Yeah. Cold calls. A lot of the running around for more of the senior type agents to try to build their business. Within a team or how does that it work? It can go either way. Okay. I think a lot of times too, is I think a lot of the newer agents, larger companies will try to campaign to be on a team. Um, some people may, may or may not want to work with them. And I think, you know, you can really cut your teeth working with senior brokers and learn a lot from them as long as they're in the office. And one thing that we, we, I focus on within our company is people in the office every day. And that doesn't always happen, but I think being in the office, collaborating with your peers, working on stuff goes a long way versus if people come in the office once every two weeks in our industry. Um, we're not a, we're not a, like a super large company by size. Like we probably have 60 ish people across the province, including our administration staff. So the ability to be in the office and a broker to be working on something and walk out of their office and say, you over there, come here. And the opportunity to get to work on that maybe because you're just right place, right time says a lot versus if you're at home, you may not get that same opportunity. So we've always been very much like, Hey, come in the office, dress the part, Let's let's collaborate. Let's do work. Let's do ideas, and see where they go. Because we we're very fortunate. We do get quite a bit of business that comes through the office that we can distribute to our brokers. So if you're in the office and stuff comes through, and that's your asset class, that's your territory. It's easier for me to walk to your office if you're there and talk to you in person than send an email or or call and and see what happens. So so it's uh you know we, 
from the stories I hear, the bigger ones, you got it. You may work in the uh, the marketing side of it or the analytics side of it for a little while before you can kind of move your way up mm. from there. You said some people have joined your firm from the multinationals. Yeah. And and so um, why would somebody leave? Like, um, do the multinationals take a bigger split or what's the usual reason? Yeah. So the, so we probably have the most competitive splits amongst the commercial brokerages. And my my theory with that was always if we create a broker first brokerage, where if I can, if from a company standpoint, if we can put more money in people's pockets, we can offer them more services and take care of them and their families along the way, the retention level should be a lot higher versus if we're purely looking at from a company perspective is we want to extract as much as we can, offer as little as possible to keep our overhead down as much as we can, uh, we won't be able to grow at the pace we want to. Um, so I think a lot of times too, is like just getting back to why someone would join it. Maybe they join a larger brokerage and maybe they feel it's just not the corporate culture for them. Like we're really big on culture. Um, they may just feel that they, they may, maybe they're not learning as much. Maybe they feel um, that the office they work at isn't in Vancouver, but it's in say Kelowna and maybe it's a satellite office or is that, that's how that company looks at it. I know we really try to emphasize we're not seven offices, we're one company. And, and I get on the video calls or in person uh, every week with every office, every agent talking about that stuff. So that way we're always doing stuff collaboratively as a group. And I think some agents maybe that have come to us from some of the larger ones, maybe felt like they were, I wouldn't want to say a number in the system is a good way to describe it, but they wanted maybe a, want to get involved a little bit more, wanted to maybe work on bigger projects. And they felt maybe there was a glass ceiling they were stuck under or that they maybe had more to offer. And I think, you know, I mean, if we look at like a hockey analogy is if you look like, look at, I can't remember what the guy's name was. He played for the, the uh, Las Vegas Knights. And I think uh, he's an expansion pick. So clearly wherever he was, they didn't feel he had the value. And then he goes to the Las Vegas Knights and I think he got like 30 or 40 goals the first year. Well, he had the talent somewhere else. He just didn't get the opportunity to show the talent. And I think that can happen sometimes. Some of the larger larger companies where you've got a lot of really well-established brokers that maybe some of the younger brokers in the company that have tremendous talent just don't get the opportunity to shine. And maybe at a, a medium-sized brokerage or someone like us, you might get that opportunity at a sooner date. So why do the really established brokers stay, do you think? Like, how how does it work? How Are they able to set up a team where they have a bunch of noobs and juniors doing yeah. all the heavy lifting? Yeah, so it, it, as far as, you know, I think it's very bespoke. Some of them have great teams that they work within. Other ones might have a partner or even, you know, a lone wolf type mentality. Um, I think a lot of it is, you know, people get set in their ways. It's not as easy to change brokerages as people think because you've got a great client list and you've got a great client base going. And, you're, and the clients stay with the brokerage. Uh, yeah, technically, technically they do. Yeah. Um, but maybe not be as easy where people start questioning, well, why did this person leave? Was it a good reason? Was it a bad reason? Why should I go? Why should I stay? So I think a lot of people just come very complacent. Like we're very fortunate. We get quite a few people from various brokerages in the city that reach out to us. Um, I'm really big component is we're all like ad team. And by that, I mean, Nobody gets any more or any less, regardless to the business you bring to the table. I think that's been one reason why we've been able to sort of grow at the pace we have versus, um, you know, you get this because you achieve this and this guy pays this because of what he gets over here. And then I think you create a lot of like infighting with that. You get layered effects on it. Um, we're very much like whether it's your first day or you've been here for 10 years or you did a dollar last year or you did a million dollars last year. Everyone gets access to the same marketing material, medical, dental plans. Like it's it's all across the board. And I think that's been one reason why I've been able to sort of have such a great team as long as we have and continue to grow that team. Because I think people feel that that ideally you can pick up the phone and call anyone and someone's going to answer the phone to help you because we all try to make sure 
everyone's on the same plateau versus, um, you know, write me a check for 250,000. I'll come over. I look at it. This is hockey analogy is a bad thing. Again, you look at like the Detroit Red Wings that made the playoffs, I don't know, 20 some odd years. Well, they drafted their teams and they invested in their players and they created a culture of winning through that versus, uh, you know, if, if, say the Canucks, for lack of better words, which I will say are off to a great start. So maybe this is our year is if you're continuing to trade players at the deadline all the time or trying to sign free agents, you're always mixing that culture up and there's always mixed messages within versus you look at these other teams, whether it be the Yankees or the or the Detroit Red Wings or whatever that that culture is bred from within and they invest in their players. They invest in their training programs. They invest in their team. And those players stay around for a long time and they want to be there. And I think that's one thing that we've always taken a liking to or tried to try to emphasize with our agents is we will we'll invest in them from day one. If we think you've got the passion for this industry, we'll show you how to make a lot of money with it. And I think that's one reason why I've been able to have the retention level that we had as long as we've had. It's impressive. Another thing I've noticed about the the big houses is that it seems like everybody's a vice president. Yeah. I was wondering, is that like... Uh, yeah, is there can be confusing when you watch the news. You're like, oh, this guy's the vice president of this big international company. I can't believe they got him on the street of Vancouver. This is yeah. amazing. Yeah. So I, I guess the title's helpful when they're dealing with clients. It yep. looks and sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, is it a function of, um, I mean, you can't, that's not a, a pyramid or a corporate structure that makes any sense. So is it a recognition of how much business you've done perhaps? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Every company has their own way of dealing with that. Every company has their own way of delegating that. Uh, in our company, no one has any titles, and and that was kind of done by design. And some people probably agree, and some people probably disagree. But I think at the end of the day, it, it, it tries to create a level playing field that we're all within. At the end of the day, I mean, if I'm an agent, I want to hustle. I want to get results. I want to drive business. I don't really care what the title on the business card is. I want to. I want to. I want to build and. I think what can happen maybe sometimes is depending on what that business card title says, maybe I don't have to work as hard or I don't answer the phone as much or whatever it might be. Um, we've we've tried to buck that trend where we're literally everyone has the same title, commercial sales and leasing. And if you want to do development land, that's totally fine. You can be commercial sales and leasing development land guy um, versus delegating titles because every company has different tiers of how that works. The flip side, of the argument is if I want to deal with someone and they they have a title, I feel they've done so much business. That's why I want to call that individual because of that. But that can be easily easily manipulated from, I mean, maybe to get a title at one brokerage, you got to do a million. Well, at our company, maybe you got to do a hundred thousand. You get the same title. There you go. So we'll spoof the public. But for us, there, no one has a title. Everyone, you know, bats from the same side of the plate. We all work hard and I think at the end of the day, if I'm a if I'm a seller or a landlord and I want to sell a building, I want to see what other buildings you've sold in the area. And if you've executed on those, I'm more inclined to work with you than for some title that you may or may not have. And I think also with the title thing, you know, some people are maybe born on second or third base. And uh, you know, maybe mom or dad gives you a building to sell and boom, you know, title achieved. One <laughs> transaction. Um, so, you I mean, there's a lot of ways like that can happen. So it's just for us, we kind of took a different route to it. There's arguments on both sides. I know people internally sometimes always ask, you know, is that going to come? But I think for right now it's, we've been able to, to, to maintain it as long as, and I think, I think, I mean, we get a lot of work in a lot of markets because of, of work that's been done and completed, not so much of a title that may or may not come with the individual. Sounds like you just want to keep it simple. Uh, yeah. I think, I think just trying to create. Minimize the bullshit. Yeah. I think trying to keep 
everyone's eyes focused on the same goal at the end of the day is in our industry, like I said, execution is everything and we get free inventory to work with. And uh, a lot of times it's going to be the individual or a family's largest asset they'll ever own. And we have to be very respectful of that. And we got to work hard for that because nothing worse in our industry is having our sign come down and having the competitors go up. And from our company standpoint and a marketing standpoint, we'll lose money on a lot of listings where we'll put big signs up or we'll spend more money on ad spends on Google or whatever it is to get the transaction to go. Because if we can't, then the next company gets the bragging rights. And for us, uh, if we lose money to do it, but we make that client happy and we build that relationship long-term, that's the key thing. As much as we're in the real estate business, we're in the relationship business. Mm -hmm. And I think so many people forget that. They look at a transaction by transaction versus if it's if you look at the long game with people and you build those relationships, um, you'll win that you'll win that game all the time. And I don't think I think too many people have a short term mindset. What about the international exposure that the big houses bring? Is that real? I, I would say yes and no at both sides. I think in BC, we're probably a little bit jaded because so many people who buy in BC have local representation or are, are in BC. That might that might be more true in, you know, Saskatchewan type of thing where maybe they don't have the same marketplace that we operate within. From our company standpoint, we've never had a problem selling to locals or international buyers. We've never had a problem moving product that way. Um, so I think there's arguments to both sides of it. I think BC, we're, we're very jaded. And I think when you look at a lot of our offices outside of Vancouver, because our Vancouver offices are largest with about 18 licensees. But if you look at our offices in Victoria or Kelowna or Kamloops, like, you know, our offices from a broker headcount is on par or bigger than a lot of the bigger brokerages down here, or they just don't have an office there, right? So, so when we get outside of there, we're 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 arguably a bigger, bigger office in some of these markets than we are maybe in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. So, but it, I will say, but in Vancouver, we've got three lower mainland offices. So again, that boots on the ground mentality. Having oh, yeah. the Fraser Valley office, we have an office in New West, which we're going to reposition over to Coquitlam, which is always our plan to do. Um, just COVID really delayed the building we wanted to buy into. So that kind of put that on pause until hopefully later next year. But again, Tri-Cities is a, is a tremendous market in amongst itself. I think having a team of five or six top-notch brokers in that marketplace that are right in the fabric of that industry, they're participating in local events. We can speak the language because we know what's going on. Uh, I think it's super important. And same with the Fraser Valley. And when you get outside of the lower mainland, like if you go to a market, say like Nanaimo, for example, where you might go, if you pulled every title in Nanaimo, you might find 90 or 95% of those titles are registered to a Nanaimo address because people buy what they know. And what's happened over the past few years is now there's there's both local and international attention on some of these markets that there wasn't was. Kelowna is a great example of that. And um, I mean, we go in there and, and having agents on the ground that know the local owners that play on the local softball team or whatever it is to get into the fabric of that community and participate in that community, I think is so important. And I think from a company standpoint, one thing that we've maybe done, um, take this with a grain of salt, because obviously it's a very biased opinion, uh, that we've maybe done better than other brokerages is we realize from the back end, we're a company, we have to operate the same from an office standpoint, but the front end of our offices are all different. And by that, I mean, what works in Victoria may not work in Kelowna. And I remember when we were scouting locations in Kelowna years ago, I was the only idiot walking around in a suit and tie, sweating in the middle of the summertime, only to find out you probably couldn't buy a tie in Kelowna if you tried. 
right? So, you know, that office is probably in golf shirts and dress pants versus Vancouver might be in more like, uh, you know, suits and ties. So we don't try to make it like corporate across the board, which I think other companies have tried and it probably hasn't resonated as well versus we kind of let every office kind of like mold to their their local markets. We just got to obviously make sure the paperwork's done. The same on the back end to account for it. Well, your growth has been amazing. I mean, seven offices in 10 years and 60 people, it sounds really, really great. Yeah, it's been very, it's been a fun ride. We've been very fortunate. And I think a lot of things is, like I'm a big believer, if you create a great work environment for people, they're going to tell other people. And that's one reason why we've grown at the pace we have. We have a, a revenue sharing program for our agents that that when agents get to a certain uh, stature within the company, whether it be years or sales totals, they have the opportunity to invest in our top line sales as a revenue sharing model. That way, they're, as company grows, they're growing, but also motivates them. If I'm sitting in the new West office and we open in Kamloops, and I know a great agent in Kamloops, I want them on my team. Right. How, so, do, how do they invest? Is it is it phantom shares or shares? Or uh, no, they, or? We, we have a, a revenue sharing model. So every single year we put out our budgets and stuff like that. And they buy a revenue sharing unit within that. Or they're entitled to a certain percentage of the top line of the company. And that motivates them to help grow the top line sales. And that's the business that we're in. And we've done it that way because I think at the end of the day, if, if I go make a bonehead decision and sign a really bad lease that maybe these people, you know, if they're getting it off the bottom line, they shouldn't be penalized because of that. And I think if also at the same point in time, if we keep it that way, then you don't have you know one office questioning the other office's marketing spend or why do they get this and we don't get this on the signage opportunity. So uh, we're in the business of sales and leasing. Uh, every business, the the true lifeblood of that business is revenue. So that's why we designed it around that. So these people can help grow the sales. And we've been we've been very fortunate. We've seen about a 20 to 23% growth year over year. Uh, with that, but it helps us grow and expand in other markets because, you know, again, like I said, we're in the connection business, the relationship business. When we want to go to a market, the broker in Vancouver is introducing us to people in Kelowna and that broker loves the idea and they come over and they love it. And they talk to other brokers in that marketplace. And then, you know, I mean, great people attract great people. So that's one reason why I think we've been, we've been fortunate to grow at the pace we have because so many people who have come from within uh, have brought other people to be part of the team. That's a really cool idea. And top line is so simple. Yeah. No you know, questions asked. And in some ways, the most important thing, because yeah. everything else flows out of there. You got it. How do you determine the the price of a unit? Uh, a unit. Yeah, care? so we, we have a metric that we apply every single year to it. It's a very generous metric for the people who participate. And and I'm a big believer. So we do like an annual payout on that revenue sharing model. So it's not it's not a share where it's like it's, a, it's going up on paper. It's like, no, they get a physical check every year. And those checks are pretty substantial. Um, I think last year we we did somewhere around two hundred and sixty thousand dollars we paid out to our our revenue sharing partners in the company, um, but that also allows us to grow. We keeps keeps retention very high, and they're they're proud of where they are, and also helps them kind of you know echo that story to other people there. So we have a metric we apply to it every year. My budgets go out, everybody sees how good or bad we're doing. It's very black and white how it works, and then uh, based on that, based on the percentage that you're entitled to, a, a check shows up every January thirty first. It's cool that they that they have to buy it too because well, they're invested. I, yeah, I think 100%, right? I think it's one thing too, like if something's given to you, you mean it still has value, Meh. not that it doesn't have value, maybe, but you maybe don't really care for it as much because you had to work as hard to get it yeah. versus if I'm writing you a check to be a part of something, Yeah, that's my hard-earned money. That's after-tax hard-earned money, Yeah, right? So um, I think it works both ways. It, it allows the company, obviously, with some um, capital to, to grow and expand, but at the same point in time too, these people- 
they want to they want to return on their money and we got to deliver the company year after year and as we want to grow they help participate in that growth and they help find the next generation of great individuals to, to join our team whether it's locally or, or maybe in the maybe in alberta next year we'll see what kind of returns roughly could someone expect could they double their money like could they invest 10 grand in, in yes. a minute and get 20 so we we you know the metrics that we work off are, are typically a four times multiple so you know people are getting north of 25 percent typically back in the first year and People have participated. In oh, so it doesn't expire every year. No, every every year you you come in and you're you're in it till you do something really stupid and we fire you. Which does <laughs> which you got to do something really stupid to get fired. Yeah. Us, so you right? buy it once and it pays every year. Every single year. Yeah. Oh, Some cool. of the people that participated in it have made over 141 percent back on their original investment within sort of a five or six year period. It's not the most. Uh, I know the accountants look at me and rip their hair out. Like, how is this system going? <laughs> does this work? Um, but for us, it's like you I mean we. I believe in our people. Obviously, they've they were they were very fortunate. They they believe back, and together we've we've made it this far. And I would, I've always been a big believer of fifty percent of a watermelon is a lot better than a hundred percent of a grape. And if you want to be successful as an entrepreneur in any facet, number one rule is make everyone around you successful first. Because mm-hmm. if you focus on them and make them successful, in turn, you'll be successful as an individual as well. And um, a lot of times with that thought, you're the last one that gets paid all the time. And sometimes you don't get paid. Um, but if you, if you make the people around you successful, they will reciprocate that back times 10. Yeah. That's a cool idea. How did you come up with it? Uh, just honestly trying to figure, <laughs> figure out a, a system that, what, what would I, what would I, what would I look for? Like, what would I want to be a part of? And, um, like we get a lot of questions about, Hey, can I buy equity? And, and that, that time will probably come, I'm sure, at some point that uh, as we continue to grow and expand, those opportunities will probably exist. Um, but I also look at like, what would I expect? What would I want? Would and, you call this phantom equity what you're what you're doing? Uh, I think to some degree. You know, if the company ever were to sell in these agreements, these people are entitled to a portion of that sale. So I wanted to make sure that nothing would be more frustrating to me as an individual if I was with a company for 10 years or 20 years and I felt I worked my ass off to grow that company and then find out that person sold and they're off on a helicopter, enjoying the fruits of life, and I'm sitting here still working. So, um, so I made sure that if that oper- if that ever happened, and we've been fortunate, we've had a lot of groups come by and knock on the door, and oh really? So would you sell and stuff like that? And 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 I think it's just like we're just having way too much fun in what we do. And I think um, with the age of our team, one thing that's that's awesome is just like so many of them now are having kids and. I mean, those kids are kind of growing up within, you know, the company and you kind of see that happen versus I, I think, I think if we ever did take a buyout, um, and I, I, it would have to be some number that would make no logical sense because I'm too young to retire and I, I get bored on the weekends is I think I'd be letting a lot of our key people down because you're talking to me today with it, but there's, there's 50 individuals behind me that make this happen every day. And I think I would be letting a lot of them down in that process. And to me, that uh, it means a lot because, like I said, they have, they have to trust us as a company as much as we have to trust them as a as a great team member. That they're taking a bigger risk on on us and me than I feel I'm taking on them. So we have to deliver every day. So I think I I think I'd let a lot of people down in that process. So I think uh, there's much bigger, grander ideas out there that I think we can try to accomplish as a team first. You mentioned kids. Do you do you have any? Two, uh, eight and six. Two boys, nice. And the, and the six-year-old's redhead, and he's the uh, the, the eight-year-old's the lover, and the six-year-old's the fighter. So <laughs> you can imagine how that all unfolds on a daily basis. I, I don't know how my wife does it. Never, never boring. Never boring. And where do you live? I'm in uh, I'm in Burke Mountain area in Coquitlam. Nice. 
Um, we, we were in the North Vancouver before, and this was when it was 2013, 14, when a townhouse would come for sale for 700,000 and it would sell for like 1.4 million. You'd feel like that, uh, that those numbers just didn't work for us at the time as a young family. So Coquitlam was our second option and we ended up in Westwood Plateau and uh, we renovated a townhouse there and we loved it. And we got to the fortunate position that we could buy a house. And we went as far as like Abbotsford to try to say, hey, like, what, how far did the dollars go? And uh, we went for a drive one day. This is just really stupid looking back down this in hindsight. Went for a drive one day, ended up in this amazing show house. And we toured it and we walked downstairs and we put a red sticker on a lot and had no money. So I was like, well, we're going to have to figure this out. <laughs> so we had, we had enough time. I think we had a, a, a year or two years before the house was actually built. So we had enough time to scrimp and save and everything kind of worked. This out. was in Westwood. Uh, this, oh, this was in uh, Burke Mountain. So we oh, were living Burke in Westwood. Mountain. Yeah, I see. Ended up in Burke Mountain. I don't know how we ended up in Burke Mountain, to be honest yeah. with you. We did. Uh, the show home was obviously overwhelming. And we're like, this is this is amazing. How much do you want for it? And it was some stupid seven figures that I'm like, all right, well, you only live once. And a red sticker went on that lot. And we thank, and God, committed. We, thank God we figured it out. It was motivating. Motivating, yeah. yeah. Every day. I think leaders like it when salespeople spend yeah. because then they have, yeah. you know, a, a lot of reasons to keep working, keep selling. Totally. It's motivating. hundred percent. I think, uh, I'm a big believer. There's sort of two people in the world. You either are, there's people that make shit happen. If I can say that. And there's people that have shit happen to them and you pick who you are. And, um, we can all sit back and complain about real estate prices, which a lot of that's all out of our control. Uh, but I've always been a believer if, that's the cost of it. And I don't have it. I just got to work that much harder to get it because it's not coming down anytime soon. So I think you, you take your pick of who you are and just go with it. Yeah. Any, um, any brands or, or firms out there that you really admire, you know, as you, as you grow your operation? Yeah. Um, I would say like, like, obviously, like I said, this, I don't want this to sound arrogant anyway. I don't really follow them nearly as much as I probably could. I'm, I'm so focal focused on what we are. Um, I think there's a lot of companies out there, maybe even not in, even our industry. That we look at. I'm a big book. I, I, I listen to audiobooks day and night and podcasts and all that stuff. And um, I mean, I think there's a lot of great companies. A really good book I listen to. I probably listen to it half a dozen times now. It's called Execution. And it just talks about the culture of companies where some companies you don't hit your target and it's like, good job, but let's get better. How can we get better? And other companies you don't hit your target and you're celebrated for not hitting your target. And I think a lot of companies out there that, that we look at and, and we follow, whether we publicly traded or privately held, um, there's a lot of companies that we we admire that we kind of obviously look, try to grow into them. I think a lot of them too is is companies that are very like corporate focused from a corporate culture standpoint, where I think culture is so much and that's everything from your office space to you know people collaborating every day that I think it's, it's super important, I think, from a growth standpoint. And I think within our industry, and this is obviously a competitor of ours, but they've done a what looks like from the outside, a tremendous job to get to a global level would be a company like Avis and Young, where they were very small. They have a, a great program, it looks like, for a lot of professionals there. And they, they grew. Where did they start? I think they started in Toronto. And then I think when they were in Vancouver, they probably had 10 or 15 people. Um, but they're they're now a, a giant conglomerate globally and probably competing up there with uh, the international companies like a CBRE type of thing from a size wise, but they seem like they've done a great job and you always hear really good things from people that work within. So I think stuff like that, we really admire versus you obviously hear people that work at any company where maybe it's not what they thought it was. I think so many people when they get a job, you know, everyone has this great grand 
vision of what this company is. And then, you know, you sit down with them six months later and like, ah, accounts payable is horrible. We're behind on this. And it's just, it's just not what they envision. And I think one thing we always try to hold up on our end is we want to be the same company a year down the road that that person felt was on day one. And I think it's a lot of that stem from corporate culture and, and individuals within. So I'd say within our industry, like Amos and Young, they have a really great model going. A lot of people that work with there on a daily basis always speak very highly of the company. And that's, that's, it's great to hear. Do you have company values? Yeah. I think one thing too, that I mean, we're, we're in the relationship business. And I think the relationship in the office we have with individuals, the relationship we have with clients is so important. Um, constantly connecting with people, I think is really important. And I know we really try to, to do a lot of corporate events with clients. We do a lot of company events internally, but I think it's really important to value, you know, relationships. Um, I think that like I said earlier, communication is so important. I think that people forget that. And I think in our business, we are in the relationship business first and foremost. And if we forget that and we lose sight of it, or we think we're bigger and better than that, we're, we're not going to be here 10 years from now. So I think relationships are the one thing that we try to value so importantly internally and externally within the company. How do you, what's like your interview process for a potential broker? You talked about attributes over experience. Yeah. How do you choose the right people? Uh, Well, I think a lot of it is just like the way I look at it is, I mean, it doesn't matter what your client list looks like. It doesn't matter what your education looks like. When you're in a room with someone, people are captivated and they want to talk to you. And it's a lot of it is like, can you hold a conversation? Can you look people in the eye and carry a conversation? Are you a confident individual in yourself? Do you believe in yourself? A lot of things like that, I think are super important. And sort of through our process, I'm much more concerned with like, what are your values as an individual? Where do you see yourself? What's important to you? More so than, you know, here's my great roster of people. I come in the office once a month and I may or may not return your phone call. Um, So that's super important. I think one thing too, I think just just in business as general, is everybody wants to be successful. I don't think anyone wakes up and says, I'm going to fail or I'm going to open a coffee shop and be like, hey, a year from now, I'm going to be out of business, living with my parents again. Everyone opens a coffee shop. This is my first of 50 to come. I just don't think a lot of people know how to be successful. And um, by that, I mean, everyone, you know, a lot of people, some people may show up at the office every day and they're working and, you know, maybe they're watching YouTube cat videos. Well, that's not the best investment of your time versus the individuals that know how to be successful. So we've been very fortunate. We have some people that have joined us that are, are, are Olympians in, in, our, in our offices. And, and a lot of people have come from experience and been successful in other industries. I think that's so important because um, just speaking to a couple of the guys that joined us that used to play for the Rugby Sevens program um, in our Victoria office there, I mean, they know sacrifice. They understand dedication. Like you don't become an Olympian by accident. And when they joined us, uh, I told them, I'm like, hey, if you have that same passion for this industry, for what you invested to become an Olympian, you'll make a million bucks. I didn't think they would do it in their second year though, but you'll make a million bucks. And um, those guys are, are phenomenal. I can't say enough good about them. And that's not just you know everybody in the company, that's just one example. Um, but I think finding people who know what success is and know how to be successful is super important. And that- Everyone's measures success differently. Like I'll tell you, I won't use a name, but I remember I hired this guy who was a bartender who walked in, uh, who was in phenomenal shape. And I'm like, you don't get in that shape by accident. So I'm like, this guy obviously works out. He's disciplined. He eats. He gets it. He's he's reached a level of success in, in what he probably put success on because you don't get in shape. I Peloton every day. You can't tell if I Peloton. Like I... I, I don't have that level of commitment 
to get into that level of shape. This individual did, and he is now one of our top salespeople, and he's a team leader in one of our offices, and he's been with us for four or five years. And that the guy literally bartended, right? So I think that just goes to show you in this industry, if you if you have the right mentorship and training, but you understand what it takes to be successful in various facets of life, and that translates to this industry, you can do really, really well. When you're managing the the business itself, are there any metrics you developed to to measure success or to be able to predict like how your years look in or? Uh, I'd say yes and no. I think COVID threw a big loop in that. I mean, we obviously are, you know, we have cycles that we go through in our industry and on an annual basis. I, I would like to tell you I've got this thing figured out, but I honestly, I don't. <laughs> I think I'd be lying to you if I told you that. Uh, I'd like to think we know what we're doing, but I don't think we have it figured out. Yeah. And I think the day we sit back and we're like, huh. Got this. Yeah. Uh, that's the day we're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel you. I think you're, it sounds like your, your main thing is just, just more, just give her hundred percent, communicate, talk, collaborate, go, go, go. Every day is different. And yeah. in our industry, you have to innovate, I think in business all the time. And you I mean, social media changed a lot of things in life. COVID changed a lot of things in life. And I was, I was at a conference in Palm Springs and they were talking about AI. And, and one of the speakers said, AI ain't going to take your job but the person that understands AI is. And it's just like, we have to constantly be innovating all the time. We have to look at what is the next trend out there that we can do. Um, our clients invest a lot of money into their products and we have to deliver and we have to feel like we're on the forefront of the marketing aspect of our business. We can't sit back and say, okay, well, we put a sign up and we place this ad in the Vancouver sun. I think we'll, we'll sit here and stare at the phone. Like we gotta look at what is the next thing out there? What's the next social media aspect? How can we grow our networks? How can we grow our databases? to make sure we always feel like we're on the front lines of innovation. Because if the day the day we stop innovating again is the day we're in trouble because the world's changing at such a rapid pace. And I think technology is just turning into like a hockey stick that uh, we got to do our best to stay ahead of it the best we can. You mentioned AI, are you, are you do you use it? Uh, I'm horrible. Like I have like an iPhone too. Like I'm the wrong guy to ask. <laughs> um, I'm the wrong guy to ask, but I think we, we're, we're adapting to it. How's that? Like we're learning it. Um, I really think that AI will have an impact on some industries more than other industries, but I think it's, uh, I think at the end of the day, they'll always, especially maybe in our industry, cause no two transactions are ever the same. Um, you need to have that frontline experience that I think, you know, an industry like us, there'll always be room for great professionals. I don't think all industries can say that. Um, but I think we have to learn it. I think we have to figure out how it works and how we can benefit by it. Cause I think if we ignore it. The company that does figure it out or how, you know, creates a competitive advantage around it, they'll, uh, they'll step in front of us pretty quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, yeah. I, I use it every day because I'm just still learning so much, Yeah, you know, about uh, how it can be used, you know, and it's not all like uh, doing parts of my job for me. Sometimes I, I use it as a resource, like uh, instead of Googling, I go there now to get, you know, a better answer or better yeah. Uh, especially in the creative generation of creative ideas and stuff. Yeah. I, I use it for that a lot. Um, but also in my personal life to, um, to save time so I can work more. Yeah. Like I, I want to take my family on a roadie this, this winter down South. And, yeah. you know, I don't have, uh, I really tried this weekend to carve out half a day to do all the research, to figure out where would be the funnest places to stop and all that. Yeah. Um, but I didn't get to it. And uh, instead, you know, you can ask, you know, chat GPT to, to do that for you. And yeah. it's, it, I don't think people realize how much it can do. Oh, it's amazing. Far beyond what you can Google, but you can ask it to plan a five day trip, a 12 day trip, a, a 22 day trip 
from here to here and, and it'll, it'll lay the whole thing out for you. No, it's amazing. I know, I know our, our marketing and your team and some of the people in the office have figured out how to do your brochures a lot faster with it. So it's, yeah. it's, it's amazing. I think we have to, we have to, we have to learn it pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's happening. You know, it's probably a good thing. We'll, we will see, yep. see what happens. Time will, time will tell. Yeah. Um, do you do much development land sales? Lots. So we have, we have a lot of brokers that, so we kind of cover all aspects all asset classes, a company that are of our size and with our office makeup, everyone kind of has the ability to kind of stay in your own lane. There's not a lot of overlap uh, happens too often or layers that kind of kick in. So does that mean that if a development site goes up, uh, comes available yeah. to the office, it should go to the expert or does it go to the person who has a relationship? Uh, so, so if it has a relationship with the agent, they're probably the one bringing it in. If it comes through the office where I have built that relationship, um, I'll always take it to the office and the experts in that office that it best suits. Um, if a piece of development land came for sale in Kamloops, it's going to go to our Kamloops broker and I'll work very closely with them to help build that relationship, expedite that Passover, but also support them along the way. Um, so development land sales, we've done a ton of it, everything from high rise sites to industrial sites to you name it, everything in between. Uh, not as much now as we did a couple of years ago, though. I no think, doubt. I think asking everybody else. Have you ever thought about asking uh, when you when you find a buyer, asking for the list back so you can do the part of the business that Key does, the the project marketing side? Yeah, well, I think on the commercial side, I wouldn't say it's an unwritten rule, but I think a lot of client, a lot of people are very appreciative if you bring them product. So a lot of it comes back to that. I think from a from an aspect side of it, like you know, we don't do residential, right? So. Um, when those opportunities come up, we're calling you type of thing where it's like, Hey, we just sold the site. This guy asked us, they want to put up 79 doors. We might stay on for the CRUs if there are any. Um, but we will always defer that to the expert. And that would be the expectation, not just of your firm, but any commercial firm. I think, I think so. We sell I you think, the site. We want the list. Yeah. Back. I think, I think, you know, there's that relationship there. And you I don't think write that, it into the deal though. No, I think, I think we're, we we want to, we want to earn it back on reputation. Like we've been, we've also been on the receiving end where, we didn't sell the site and then we get brought in after. And and that can be sometimes maybe that agent or that brokerage specializes maybe more in the land side of it and doesn't necessarily have the uh, the marketing expertise on the pre-sale side of it, whether it be pre-sales or pre-leasing. I think other times too, people might want a greater profile of a brokerage, or maybe like a local brokerage in a certain market had sold that to them, but they figured to move the product, they want to have a brokerage that's got a bigger, bigger span with it. So I think for us, we never make it part of the deal. Um, if, if I don't want to say writing it in would almost be, you know, unlawful to do so, but I want to, I want, I want someone to come back to us because they appreciate working with us and they know we're going to execute on it. I would want to handcuff anyone to make it part of the deal and put our interests ahead of theirs where you only get this site. If you give us this, I think if that's kind of your, your, your mantra of business, you're not going to be in business very long. Yeah. Plus it's weird. You know, yeah. like you write it into, into what your commission agreement on the sale, but what, what teeth does it have? Yeah. It would, it would say, if you don't give it to us within three years, we don't have the opportunity to, to get the list back to sell it. Yeah. Then the commission we agreed upon here doubles or something. I yeah. don't know. It's weird. I think for us, like, it's like, we've, uh, I mean, we value relationships, like I said. So, I mean, we, that's where a lot of that business gets reciprocated from. So we would never want to handcuff anyone or, or tie anybody into anything. Like if we do a sale transaction and we're paid a percentage of that sale and we've earned that money, then that's that's great. If they come back to us to do the sales and leasing aspect of it, we, we think that's even better, but we would never hold their handcuff them to it. And I think uh, it'd be a very unlawful practice if you put your interests ahead of other people's. 
with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely not playing the long game. No, no. And, and for us too, it's like, I mean, if we get a project and we're, we're pitching on a project, we've never lost a project over commissions and we never will. And I remember, remember hiring you know, some, some newer agents to the industry and they're like, well, when's if I got to cut my commission to do a deal? Are you gonna be mad? And I'm like, no, I'm gonna hug you. Because if you don't do that deal, we can't tell the whole block what you did. And if you don't do that deal, you can't further that relationship with that client. So um, for us, like I said, it's, it's a long game. It's a relationship business. We feel we work hard. I think a lot of times we get the opportunity to do the sales and leasing because of what we've done before and what we've executed on that. Uh, that's, I think, speaks volumes. Have you done pre-sales before? Yeah. Yeah. Pre-sales, pre-leasing. Office or retail? Office, retail, uh, industrial all of that stuff. So we have teams, we've done stuff in Vancouver Island, the BC interior, lower mainland. Um, it's a, I think it's a little bit of a different metric, different markets, like, you know, markets in the, in the interior and probably the Island is more like standing product where don't necessarily sell off floor plans, but then we've also been very successful in selling projects out off of floor plans in secondary markets that traditionally didn't happen to. And I think whether it's, you know, investors or, Know, end users or whatever it is. Like it's a matter of us understanding what is the offering we're bringing forward? What is the market asking for? Because I think it's like anything in business. If you go to your clientele and say, hey, what do you want? And they're like, I want this. You're like, okay. And you give it to them, you're going to be successful. Um, versus if we go out there and we try to tell you what you're going to buy, we probably won't be so successful. So I think a lot of it's just having a really good offering and working with the developers at a very early stage. A lot of developers I get commercial can be an afterthought. We get columns in the middle of CRU units because it lines up with the parking below to help sell the 90 condos above. Like I get that. Um, but getting involved in a very early game, we can say, hey, this is this is what this market is lacking. And you know, I mean, you go to Kamloops, right? And and obviously this is an over-exaggeration, but find me 1,500 square feet of strata industrial in Kamloops. I'll buy it tomorrow. It doesn't exist. It does exist. There's a couple buildings, but the, the strata boom never came there. So that's a market that's crying for that product. And if someone just says, hey, this is what they want and you deliver it, you'll be hugely successful. When we went into Victoria, um, probably five years ago now, um, our office is on ground floor retail, which most of our offices aren't on ground floor retail. Why we're on ground floor retail is we couldn't find a strata office to buy. And that market just hadn't really existed there. So when we're working with developers, we're telling them like, hey, the office market probably isn't what it once was. But there's still a lot of professionals out here, whether they be architects or lawyers or professional services or medical industry, that are still in a position to buy space. And at some point in time, someone will build a small micro little office building with, you know, 16 or 20 strata lots in it, and they'll they'll sell it because that market exists. So when developers get us involved really, really early, we're hopefully, you know, contributing our portion to have them be most successful on the exit because they're designing product for the market that exists, not something that they think they want. Mm-hmm. The pre-sales that you've done, any projects I might be familiar with or a more obscure? Yeah. What have we done? Uh, so like uh, one project we were just wrapping up is called the West Shore Business Park in, uh, in uh, Langford. It was 33 industrial strata units. Um, we went to market with that offering at the same time, two competitors also brought product to the market. We sold ours out, I think in under six months and uh, the other ones to this day, fast forward two years, still have product left. I think a lot of that's just just the uniqueness to our marketing style with it and you know, picking up the phone and calling people and going on a road show, showing up at offices with brochures to tell them all about our projects, stuff like that. So that was one. We've done some stuff, some retail projects 
in uh, some retail projects in Victoria. We have a couple of Vancouver projects on the retail side coming out that we'll be able to talk about probably early next year. But a lot of times our, our stuff is a lot more mesquite compared to what you guys would deal with, where there's a lot of hype going around 300 units in a building and we've got like 1,700 square feet of retail next to the garbage to sell. So you don't really hear about us as much. Uh, so we don't get the same pizzazz, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's it's just the reality of the construction of some buildings. But, yeah. uh, and I don't know if that's going to change, you know, the office markets changed you know yeah. we we were we successfully sold strata office in in burnaby yeah you know in the in the sort of 2017 ish time period i guess uh, or 2015 2016 and um yeah it was hot you know yeah. we, we sold it at uh higher prices than the resi believe it or not wow um even though it's a cheaper product for the developer to deliver yeah. but that's just where that market was at that time yeah Another thing I've noticed that's different between the the resi and the commercial uh, culture of agents is the cooperation level is different. Yep. You know, on the resi side, it's um, in our world, 96% of the deals we cooperate on. Yeah. Um, but on the commercial side, in my family's experience and everything, it's so much less. Why do you think that is? Um, I think, well, the MLS program, like just from like locally here, isn't nearly utilized as much. A lot more transactions happen what they would call off market where you're kind of like, you know, you own a building and I listed the property next door to you. I'm calling you to see if you want it. Um, when I say, I think we've done things a little bit different. We encourage our agents to always cooperate. And every time we're taking on a listing, we're always cooperating. We, we put that right into our proposals because our goal is to sell the product. Our goal is to put the client's interest ahead of ours. And um, a lot of times, I mean, a lot of agents have stories where they, they brought forward an offer they put a commission in the offer. It's an off-market transaction. And they're told like, nope, you got to get paid by the client. We're not paying you. And my my thoughts on that, if I was the client on the other side and they're like, hey, I want to do that offer, but you won't bring me the offer because you want to get paid X, I would be very frustrated. So we make it sort of, I wouldn't say it's a mandate, but we we'd encourage everybody to always cooperate. Again, if we can sell the property and we can cooperate with you to get the deal done as another agent, and we sell it together, we high five, I get to go tell the whole neighborhood what we did. Yeah. Versus if I don't cooperate with you because I want to make sure my my side's taken care of first and foremost, and I don't sell it, I can't tell the other 10 building owners on the block what we didn't do. So we try to, we encourage everybody to always cooperate. I know a lot of the, the bigger projects and stuff like that, that we get involved with, it's a question that always comes up from developers. Do you cooperate? And we try to like almost like cut them off mid-sentence. Like, yes, yes, we do. Because uh, we want to, we have a lot of stuff to sell, and we'd be we'd be very arrogant to think we could go sell fifty five office strata lots in a building. To sell fifty five office strata lots, you need fifty five cooperating agents. A lot of times, where you've got the offering, but I don't know every doctor in Coquitlam to take them to them. I need the broker community to work with me. So uh, we encourage everybody across the board to cooperate. Now I'm not going to lie to you and say it always happens, but. Uh, I would like to think a lot of our agents that have done a lot of tremendous deals are the first ones to do that. And again, from our standpoint too, it's 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 the long game where it's not like, well, you pay me this, but if you want me to cooperate, then you're going to pay me. You don't pay me this. It's like no, no. This is the fee to do the job, and if we cooperate, we have to cooperate to get that to happen. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. And if we don't, great. But the end of the day is get the product sold, get at least on to the next one. Sounds good. I like it. Awesome. I mean, our deals, the way we structure it, we don't, uh, we, we, we don't even have a financial incentive 
yeah. uh, to double end it. In fact, we don't even ever rep buyers. It's, yeah. We're just not in that business. We only, only rep the sellers, only yeah. the developers. Well, I think if you look at like the industry and I, I, these numbers could be off, like, you know, what, 24, 25,000 licensees, probably the greater Vancouver real estate board. That's a lot of people you can work with to sell a lot of product. The minute you shut that door, you know, you got <laughs> your jobs a lot harder. So, I mean, I, I, I probably got five friends. I think like I don't have enough people to sell product to. So I think if you kind of close that door off the starter going into it, that's the mentality is I'm not working with anyone. I'm keeping the whole pie for myself. That might be the only pie you ever eat because if you successfully sell that project out and the next door neighbor is like, Hey, I've got to build something too. There's a high probability. You're the first phone call because you execute at the end of the day. Versus if it takes you nine months or a year or two years to sell that product, chances are that neighbor might have picked somebody else because he doesn't want a competing product. And I think in our business too, a misconception would be, well, you're selling my neighbor. I don't want you to sell me. That's like a conflict of interest. That's not a conflict of interest at all. It's control. I'm selling the neighbor. I'm getting more phone calls. And if this product that won't work out for everybody doesn't work out for this buyer and, and I'm working with the neighbor, I'm walking right into your building right after. Or vice versa. Let's cool. We can we can we can tag team it and work it together. So I think I think having the ability to work on various projects in various markets is an advantage, not a disadvantage for clients to work with. Yeah. The same brokerage agent. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yep, I agree. I learned a lot, man. I appreciate it. Appreciate I get you. It. I feel you. You are a force of nature, and uh, I feel why you've uh, had so much success over ten years. Well, I, I appreciate it, and like I said, it's uh, it's a tremendous team effort. I, I definitely can't take all of it. We have an amazing team to get us here. Sounds like it. All right, thanks. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.